Okay, First uh, John, I think we're on chapter 5, roughly uh, verse 13. Okay, chapter 5, verse 13. Should be about an eighth, an eighth of an inch from the end of the Bible. How are you? Good. Don't take all the coffee. Okay, all right. Exactly right, yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, we got through 13 to 15, but we didn't move on to 16. So let's, let's reread 13 to 15, and then we'll spend a little time with 16 um, through the end of the chapter, okay? So, and through the end of the book. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So already, uh, what you know about this audience is, um, what do you know about this audience while I look for a marker? What do you know? They're believers. Yeah, that's the first thing you know. There might be. Um, so he's writing first and foremost to the believers. Uh, yeah, that would be better. Yeah, uncertainty. What else do you know? What's the context for this? For this, uh, what, what kind of writing is this? Is this a letter? Is this a sermon? Is it, what is it? Probably a sermon, but obviously it's written. So you have to see this in the context of um, one big sermon. Yes, you know back from the be good. You know back from the beginning that these are uh, believers and they're specifically catechumens. Now think about a catechumen, and I know for some of you, um, you know, you were catechumens recently, and for some of you, it's been some time since you were. But um, how would uncertainty sort of go hand in hand with being a catechumen? There is so much to learn, um, and as you know. And it's especially the case today, but it was also for the early church. Um, there are really there's so much to learn, but it's not it's it's information. And what else? Uh, yeah, faith. Which, if you were here for church yesterday at the Eucharist, you know faith is really life. Um, and the information is is sometimes easier to grasp. But what's the context? What do you know about the time of the early church, even especially before? Christianity became legal, um, you know, in the fourth century. What do you know about the life of a Christian in those times? Yeah, perilous, one, because you could be killed at any time. What do you know about families? Who was in charge of the family? Father, very patriarchal. And fathers, um, at least in the early church, were often not the ones who brought people to the church. Who was it that brought people to the church? The mothers, which is why in the early church, one of the chief offices in the church was not pastor, not deacon, not bishop, but deaconess. Because who could get into a house and talk to the mother and the children? A deaconess. Okay? So you have to see that as you read this text. These are believers because they're catechumens, um, but they're, they're trying to understand and become certain of not only the information. And the information was, um, you know, Christ died. Christ rose, Christ will come again, which is just a summary of the creed. Remember, uh, for a catechumen, you had to be able to recite the creed to be baptized. And so this is just a, this is just, uh, a summary of, specifically, the Apostles' Creed, which is the baptismal creed. 
But this was maybe the easier part. Yeah, we believe that that man named Jesus did die, he did rise, and he will come again. This was often the harder part because it, may, it meant giving up what? The way of the world, which was thoroughly pagan, thoroughly antichrist. That makes sense? It's the same thing with catechumens today. We don't spend, um, partly it's culture, but this is not where people struggle. In fact, most people coming to the church today don't care so much about this. Um, that's not what drives them. That not, that's not what brings them to the church. This is the reason they're in the church, because they want to actually escape the ways of the world. Um, and so this is, why, this is why finding your spot is so crucial. In fact, I just talked to someone yesterday who said, um, yeah, some people don't believe that the whole notion of finding your spot will have an impact on the church. Actually, this, young, this person said, and he's about 35, he said, the reason my wife and I came to the church was because we wanted to find our spot in a world that was very chaotic. And that's very different maybe than it was even, you know, especially at the time of the Reformation, where it was having the right information that mattered. But even as late as, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, this was not um, what drew people into the church in the same way that it does today. However, in the early church, what drew people in was the way of the world, escaping the way of the world. Okay, and it did mean death. It did mean death. This is why I'm giving you a lot here, but this is why First John talks all the time about witnesses, and the Greek word for witness is martyr. The Greek word for witness is martyr. So he says we're witnesses of these things, meaning you're going to be killed for these things. That all makes sense? Okay. Well, and tell me a little more about that because you're right. We are on information overload. In fact, it dawned on me this morning. As I woke up, what was the first thing I did? Check my phone to see if there was new email. That's information overload. I don't need to do that. But I did, and that it's, al it's almost become habit. In fact, uh, someone once told me a story. You may have known this story about how it went poorly for him when he brought his cell phone and set it on the nightstand. <laughs> and he said, I realized then <laughs> that it was information overload and I need to take it out of the bedroom, right? But that's... Yes, okay, good. So you know this woman, huh? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> that was one of the, when I got a, uh, a smartphone or a PDA, one of the first things John said was, my fatal mistake was, I brought it. He said, so don't do that. And I don't think I've ever brought it in the bedroom. No, okay. But we're in information overload, but what you find is with information, you actually become more and more alone and unloved because it can't satisfy, Right? It can't satisfy. And this is, re this is really why there's been a shift in the way we even do catechesis. Because now theologically, information doesn't satisfy. And even in the scripture, it's not information alone that satisfies. There are plenty of people, the demons believe all the right information. What the demons reject is the life. This is why it says, you know, even Satan, people always say, even Satan knows the truth of scripture. Knowing the truth doesn't matter. It's knowing the life and embracing the life. Yeah, Ab. Yeah, there was an article just recently in, um, in First Things, which is a theological journal, written by the guy who used to be the religion editor for Newsweek. And it was called, like, Growing Up Catholic in the 50s or something like that. And what he said was even his kids, who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, had a completely different upbringing because his kids weren't defined by the parish they attended. 
where he said, we were defined by the parish we attended, the prep school we attended. Your theology, your church, defined everything. And we don't have that today. It's just not the way we operate. Um, and it's funny, what defines us is information. What satisfies us is a life. Okay? So, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So what they believe in is not Jesus. He doesn't say that. You believe in Jesus. You believe in the name. That you may know that you have eternal life. Certainty is different than assurance. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so here, this is what I gave you last week. Um, the will of Jesus is just his name in action. Remember, Jesus never works outside of his name. So if you can't find it in his name, you can't ask for it, nor can you say, this is what Jesus wants from me. Okay? And so Jesus, <laughs> what's Jesus' primary name? Way, truth, life. Okay? And these two, we often agree with this. These are the two we struggle with. You can't kill helpless people and say that Jesus is life, and you can't tell a lie and say Jesus is truth. His will is his name put to action. And if we know that he hears us, verse 15, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So he hears you and he answers you. And as I told you, Bernard of Clairvaux, he has that great line. He either gives you what you want or he gives you something better. But part of being a Christian, part of, you know, if it was just purely information, the something better would be what you determine. When it's faith in life, the something better is what Christ determines. So sometimes the something better is a bad diagnosis, a death, loss of a job, things like that. So it's redirecting your focus and saying everything needs to be defined by Christ. Now, there's a shift. And so now he tells uh, the people in the congregation how to care for one another. If anyone, verse 16, sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. What does it mean he shall ask? What is that referring to? He will pray. Yeah, he'll pray. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. Now let's just stop right there. I don't think and I may be wrong, I don't think we often think of these in these terms as Lutherans. What do we say about sin? Yeah, exactly. We say a couple contradictory things, maybe. Um, exactly. We do say that, but we're not, we're not quick to really point out what that is. Except we say it's rejection of the Holy Spirit, but nobody can describe what rejection of the Holy Spirit really is. So, we say a couple things. Um, sin is sin, is sin. So we say, um, for instance, uh, missing an appointment um, because of you know, a lack of organization or because you're um, a procrastinator, whatever it may be, is equal in effect to someone who commits murder. Sin is sin is sin, right? At the same time we say, um, there is one sin that's unforgivable. Leave it at that. Then we also say, sin boldly. Oh, it's true. We say it, 
right? You can see how this doesn't add up. We also say, um, and maybe this isn't a Lutheran thing, this is just oftentimes you hear it from Christians, we say um, sin and ask for forgiveness later. Okay? Say that again? Yeah, it is, but you hear it all the time. I hear it all the time at the church. Sin and ask for forgiveness later. You're like, I don't think you really mean that. So, you got a couple, you got a couple things. So what this what this says is all is equal. What this says is um, all is not equal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What we say here is um, uh, some doesn't harm or doesn't harm as bad. And what we say here is, uh, you know, everything is forgivable. So you see here, I mean, and there are other instances of this, but you see here there's a contradiction in all these things. And then St. John gives you sort of a very basic understanding of sin, which is some sin leads to death. Some sin does not lead to death. So how do you determine, because we don't take, yeah, we, we love Luther, but we don't take Luther's sin boldly on the same level as 1 John. Um, we don't take, you know, common consensus in the world, sin and ask for forgiveness later, as more important than John. Um, and we don't take, you know, sort of the common Lutheran understanding, sin is sin is sin, on the same level as 1 John. So first we have to start with John and work backwards. So what would, what would define then sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death? How do you make that distinction? Good. What you have to good keep pushing. Good. So it's it is still sin, but it's not sin on the same level, right? Okay. So let's just put number one here: sin that leads to death, and number two there. So sin that leads to death, uh, premeditated. Okay. Keep going. What else? What else would help you define this distinction? Because this is very important. First John, base, this is the end of his sermon. If you know anything about preaching, the two most important parts are where? Yeah, beginning and the end. You can say whatever you want in the middle because people don't always listen the whole time. But at the beginning, if you don't start off well, what happens? They're not listening at all. Yeah. And if you don't end well, they say, is this thing over? What happened? I didn't know it was over. So, so whatever he says at the end is actually very important. He starts off at the beginning with the whole discussion of love. And, and how he speaks right to them. You're catechumens, you're young people, you're older men. And then at the very end, he's trying to get in all of his last, you know, last great ideas. This appears in the very last chapter, five or six verses from the end. So it must be important. Okay? This distinction must be important. And it must be a distinction that is somehow applicable to the congregation to which 1 John is writing. They must be dealing with this. So, sin that leads to death. One way to describe that is it's premeditated. What else? Yes, Donna. Okay. Okay, good. Good, live questions, good questions. That's a good question. Because uh, I'll ask you a different question. Is there more than one way to reject Christ? Because how do we often think of rejecting Christ? Yeah, exactly. Don't go to church. We think of it as the college kid who sleeps in, you know, and says, I don't need that church thing. Or the person who grows up and has some traumatic thing happen in their life, and what do they say? God must not love me. I'm never going back to church. And therefore, we say, they've rejected Christ. Therefore, they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they can't be saved, or they aren't saved right now. Yeah, good. 
Because you've made God a liar. Yeah, okay, good. So one way, Donna, very dogmatic, doctrinal way, but still the right answer. That's why I love you. Uh, you were supposed to teach this week. Yeah. But you're right, rejection of his mission. It's a, reje it's a very basic, it's a, very, it's a rejection of baptism. It's a rejection of baptismal gifts. It's a rejection of the person of Christ. Okay, those are all dogmatic ways of talking. Yeah. You can, get, you can do it on your own. Exactly, exactly. So that would, be its most, that would be its most general, basic definition of rejection of Christ. And you're exactly right. The question is, is there more to it? Can there be more to it? Yes, Holly. Interesting. That's not the way I read it, but it very well could mean that. So you read this as, so we have two possibilities. One is physical. Okay. Yes. It, oh, it makes complete sense. I'm not, uh, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not confused. I'm just trying to figure out what John is saying. Because he could be saying one of two things. Because um, in the context of 1 John, um, you have to, so this is where you have to read the, 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 uh, the book in context. The book in context, there are actually, um, there are some books that speak often of physical death. Like, for instance, 1 Corinthians. Because what are they doing? They're, you, know, you have this problem where they're baptizing people that have died. Then they don't believe in the resurrection. Then you remember St. Paul says, if you take the Lord's Supper and you don't believe it, some of you are getting sick and some of you are even dying. Very physical, tangible stuff. The interesting thing is, I don't know if that's the same way in which John is talking. John is talking much more about the life of a Christian in a very spiritual sense. Um, could very well be a physical death. Could be a spiritual death. The question I would pose is, is there really any distinction between those two? Obviously, one life ends. But in some sense, spiritual life, when spiritual death occurs, life ends as well because you cease to be human. So, so maybe it's both. Maybe it's not both. But let's keep pressing and see what we can get. But I think you're right. Well, the minute you said it, I thought, I have heard that before. But I, that's not what I was thinking when I read it. Let me go to the, yeah. Let me go to the back, and then I'll come to you, Ab. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's the, I think that's, the, and this is where even 1 John is written differently than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is adamant about life that comes in physicality. The word became flesh. But um, if you were a Gnostic, how did you have truth in life? It wasn't by physical stuff. It was by this and by um, spirituality. And so if it is true that he's writing against the Gnostics, that could be, that could be the point. So maybe, and again, this is the context, maybe it is more this than anything else. Abby? Right. Right. And this is, so what, what you've basically done is um, expanded upon what both Donna and Carol said. Yes. And we talked about that. Remember we talked about persistence is, um, persistence is the key to unrepentance. Because persistence means you don't care. Good. And this is, this is then Abby's point about pastoral care, which is when someone comes in and says, I've struggled with this, it could be the same thing over and over and over again, but oftentimes you err on the side of forgiving because it's a struggle, not persistent unrepentance. When someone comes in and says, I did this and I don't care, which does happen, surprisingly. You don't think they'd come in if they didn't care. But they come in and say, I don't care, then, it's very, then you can't forgive. The key stays locked, right?
what would you call you before you came to church? Oh, um, a little late to the game, but we still love you. You had tickets, you just hadn't gone through the guy. I don't know. Uh, that's a difficult question because we can't, we can't um, there's no sense in looking back and trying to figure out what you were. Um, yeah, exactly, yep. Yep. Yeah, right. But the point is that wasn't persistent unrepentance, which is very, lack of knowledge or lack of interest is different than persistent unrepentance. Okay? I think we're getting somewhere, though. Keep going, Holly. And then I'll come to you. Sorry. Uh, the question is who the, um, who, yeah, who is he talking to? That's the question. There is sin that leads to death. I do not pray. Who is the one that one should pray for that? Is it, I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, so let's start at 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, okay? So now let's envision this. Um, I didn't get any sleep last night because Claire was up, and I come in, and I don't say hello as friendly as I should. And you see that. That might be a sin not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will give him life. So you might want to pray for that, like, hey, give him a better day. Um, the question is, though, yes, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not pray, I do not say that one should pray for that. Now let's keep reading and see if it helps us. I know, I know the question is who or what. All wrongdoing is sin, good, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That doesn't help us out. Yeah, it does tell us God cares for us, but it doesn't tell us who the one is. I do not say that one should pray for that. Right. One. <laughs> oh, see, now we need somebody, we need somebody uh, a little better than that. Um, Yes, that would, that would get back to the whole context of believers. So uh, your job is not to go out and see pagans on the side of the road and say, you sinner, you shouldn't act like that. That's not your job. Your job, first and foremost, is to care for the brotherhood, which is the church. So I think he's talking about the context of the, of the congregation. Yes, it might. So let's narrow the context, Holly. The context is believers, let's say local congregation. Which means, just in theory, this should not be on the table. People who are adamant unbelievers. So I've got friends who are, you know, they just, they believe in Christian science, they believe in whatever. That's not who we're talking about. Exactly. So the context is narrowed, which is the local congregation. He's writing a sermon to a congregation. Um, so this, at least, is that Emma or Claire? At least. I said to the joint group, I can hear my own kids cry. That's got to be her. Five bucks. So um, this, we think, in theory, should be off the table. Can there be unbelievers in a congregation? Yeah. But who's he writing to? Believers. But that doesn't mean these things are off the table. Okay? And it may mean, um, so you're not praying here, persistent. That could be part of it, yes. It could be part of it because, um, so who's given to, yeah, so uh, we need a little more board here. Could be don't judge. Um, why? Because 
God judges. Or at least you shouldn't. Good. Keep going. Because you can't. Yes, you can't judge hearts. There's the answer. We're done. Let's pray. Lord's Prayer, we're all going to go home now. Yes, it does. So the, yes, so the point is, um, there, are some thing, there are some sins you can spot. There are some sins you can't spot. Um, sin that leads to death is oftentimes sin you can't spot. Now, here's the caveat. Sometimes it is sin you can spot. But oftentimes it's spiritual sins. So you can't say... So what does this mean? What can't you talk about? This is very good. You can't talk about motive. He or she is doing that because he or she wants this. Right? Um, you can't say, this is happening, um, and I think it's, you know, you can't say, it's happening, and here's my perception of it, therefore this person is wrong. Why? You've judged hearts. Make sense? Now, but let's get back to this, because this is important here. Unrepentance is a sin that leads to death. What, how else would you describe sin that leads to death? It's not just unrepentance. What's, what's some way you can, you can spot this in yourself, not necessarily in others, in yourself? Uh, how would you, if you were trying to judge whether or not a sin of yours was a sin leading to death or not to death, and this is partly what you have to do, how would you, how would you judge those things? What would you start with? Foolish things. Yeah? How would you judge those as an adult? What objective standard would you use? Okay, someone else. What objective standard would you use? Commandments. Good. So ten commandments. Maddie, Maddie, Maddie. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I can't believe, I can't believe you of all people said that. <laughs> That's great. Touche. That was good. I've never heard that before. Okay. All right. So ten commandments. What else would you use? Ah, uh, yeah. I can tell you the way the church has often talked about this, and I mean the broader church here, because Lutherans for some reason haven't engaged this text real thoroughly. Um, oftentimes the way the church has talked about this is it's judged by the Ten Commandments. So here's the thing. Having a bad day at its core may be a sin against one of the commandments, but it's not the same sort of thing as when you have an affair. Waking up and having a bad day is a different sort of deal. Um, so, Ten Commandments, or as they call it, grave matter. These are grave sins. When you break, this is the thing people don't understand. Oftentimes, if you are judging, and now I'm talking about the church here, not the world, because the world it may be different. I heard, uh, I, I was listening to this radio show, and these people were calling in about affairs they know their spouses had had, and one woman said, he's had an affair for 23 years, and... Um, he was never a Christian, and he's just joined the church. He goes to church every week and receives the Eucharist, and he knows he's having an affair, and no one will stop him. Here's the thing. That's grave matter. We all know it. What, we, what are some Ten Commandments sins we don't think of, maybe in terms of grave matter? It's giving church on Sunday, right? Yeah, we sort of say, uh, don't have an affair, don't steal money. You probably shouldn't kill anybody, but if you need to we'll go to the Bears game, I mean, hey, okay. Ten Oh, yeah, that's grave matter. If you, as Christ says, if you look at someone else lustfully, you've already had an affair in your own heart, that's grave matter, right? So grave matter would be one, you have to have some objective standard. You can't just say it's what you think is bad and I think is bad, because if that's true, there'd never be a sin leading to death. 
The objective standard is Christ's Ten Commandments, grave matter. What else would be part of this? If you're going to sin against the Ten Commandments and it's a sin leading to death, what would that mean? How would you sin? Knowingly or unknowingly? Yes, good. So it would be full knowledge. This is a different color for some reason. Good. And we're going to get to that. Yeah, we're going to get to that in just a second because he does say that. But there are some that might kill you, right? Grave matter, full knowledge, and finally, as the church has said it, full consent. Okay? It's one thing to be forced into this. Let me give an example. Someone who's married and gets raped. Okay? Now, have they had a marital relationship? Not marital, but have they had a sexual relationship with someone not their spouse? Yes. Uh, full knowledge? Yeah, they knew it was happening. Full consent? Absolutely not. Make sense? This would be, um, you know, let's just take the church one. I don't want to go to church. I know I should go to church. And guess what? I'm going to stay home and not go to church. That's grave matter, one of the Ten Commandments. Full knowledge, I know better. Which means, as a little child, sometimes this one is very hard to spot. Right? And full consent, I'm not forced into it. These three things, then, if I throw a marker, is that full consent, full knowledge, and grave matter? These three, three things, then, lead to sin that equals death. And this is what the church, and I told you this last week, this is what the church as a whole has always called mortal. It'll kill you. Okay? Yeah, because think about these things. Now let's just go back to the basic definition of repentance. What does repentance mean? It means you've sinned against one of the commandments, you have full knowledge of it, and you're trying to turn it around. It's unconsenting. It's, it's, it's consenting to something better. So, yes, at its, at its most basic definition, yeah, and when you don't want to admit it, it might kill you. And why might it kill you? Because it's never, and it's never been forgiven. Okay? It's never been forgiven. So you're exactly right. So now look at your text. Is this making sense? If it's not, stop me. If anyone sees it, do you have a question? I feel like that every day. Yeah, I agree. And that would be that would be um, people who, say that again? I know. Here's the thing. The Lord doesn't set this up to be very difficult. And sometimes we make it more difficult by drawing big diagrams like this. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. And partly the only reason we categorize it is because First John categorizes it. I have no idea. You can ask him someday. But I don't, but you are right. Okay, so here's the thing. What does the Lord expect? Does he expect you're never going to sin? No, he expects you're going to sin. But he expects as a Christian who, I mean, now think about this. What he expects is you won't say of the Ten Commandments, I know them, I don't like them, and I'm not going to do them. He doesn't expect that, right? He expects you're going to have a bad day. He expects, you know, you're, you're going to yell at your kids. He expects that. What he doesn't expect is you're going to say, You've said, live like this because it'll go best for me. I don't want to live like that. I'm going to live like this. I know I should live like this. I've decided not to, and I'm going to consent to whatever I want to do. That's not how he sets up his church. And those sins will ultimately kill you because you're not really repenting. You're not really asking for forgiveness. When you come to church on Sunday and you know you've had an affair, you stole money, you spoke ill of your neighbor, you told a lie, you know, 
to go out and do it again then means what? It really didn't affect you that much. And that's where the categorization does have to happen. Because persistent sin without repenting. And, and here's, here's partly our trouble, and I've noticed this in all of us. We, don't, we think oftentimes in, in terms of repenting equals confessing. Exactly. It's very easy to come to church on Sunday and speak the general confession and go out and lie in your taxes. Yeah, I mean, so partly saying it is not the same as doing it. There are two steps to this equation. We're very good at this. Lutherans love the general confession. They don't really like private confession, but they like the general confession. And everybody is willing to come to church and say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. But the question is, when they go out, are they going to stop being mean to their wife? Are they going to stop stealing money? Are they going to stop having an affair? Are they going to stop skipping church every other week? And that's where the breakdown happens. We're good at this. We don't do this. But if you don't always repent, you can't be forgiven. That's part of the equation. Repent and be baptized. And if you're not forgiven, it'll kill you spiritually. It'll hurt you so badly, at some point you won't be able to recover. And you know, I mean, you know this from other things in life. There comes a point where people get so sick, not even chemo helps, not radiation, nothing helps. Same thing in the church. Is God. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yes. How would that, how would private confession relate to? Yeah. Don't know how that would relate, how you almost died as a young kid. I don't know. Really? Really? The Holiday Inn. Those Holiday Inns. I always knew something was bad about them. Yep. So your question might be, how do those experiences of almost dying, how would that affect your confession? You might be a little more grateful for forgiveness at that point. <laughs> Only someone who's almost died can be grateful for resurrection. And you said Mexico in spring. Was that spring break? Okay, good. All right. Just checking. It is spring break. I, I, all I heard at the beginning was Mexico in the spring, and I didn't know what you meant. It's good to know it wasn't spring break. Yes, Barb. Yes, right. Exactly. And and this is and this yeah, and this that's exactly right. And it gets back to your point, Lisa, about only God can judge hearts, which is which is oftentimes pastors or uh, people think pastors judge hearts. That's a misunderstanding. What happens is in Matthew eighteen where it says, I give you the keys, the Greek text says, Whatever is bound in heaven shall be bound on earth. So who makes the first move? God binds or looses. My job's only to speak for him. Right? So it's not, it's not up to me to figure out if you're repentant, although God always, he's always been a Lutheran, right? So he always works by means, which means God uses human beings to carry out his will. So if he needs someone to listen and say, now, is this repentance or, and, and struggle or unrepentance and persistent sin, he's not off in heaven trying to figure that out. He's going to use human beings to do that. And that's what happens when you go to a pastor. But at the end of the day, confession or absolution or binding come from him first. Yep, yep. I go like two different They are two different sins, yep. But I can still say, oh, I'm really sorry. Yep. Let me ask you something. Is your, um, you, talking about you, I'm not talking about in general, you, you get cut off and, you know, you drop this, you drop that, like F-bombs, A-bombs, T-bombs, whatever bombs you want to drop, is that really 
full knowledge, is that really the, does that really take the same amount of full knowledge and full consent that it takes to pull over on the side of the road, get out your gun from the back, load it? Okay, good. So pick up the gun that's already loaded. Do you watch Swamp People? You need to watch Swamp People. Swamp People is great. I love that show. Good. But let me ask you something. Does that really, do you really give the same full knowledge and full consent to a swear word that you do to pulling out a gun and shooting someone? Yeah. He's a better person. Yes, he has. Better than me, too. Because I could never give the same And let me say this. There are people that pastors forgive whom they don't want to forgive. But that's part of the deal, right? right? So um, you're, you're swearing at the guy who cut you off is a weak moment. Yeah. You're pulling out a gun and killing somebody takes full knowledge and full consent. True. True. And this is, why, this is why there could be, um, you know, given your state of mind, there could be instances where killing someone is not full knowledge and full consent. Yeah, right? So this is why it's so difficult. This is why the Lord deals with people individually. But I do think you're right. There is a difference. Um, and there may be a difference in the way the Lord forgives people. It doesn't mean he doesn't love people, he doesn't forgive people, but it does take, it does, it, you've got to imagine the Lord has to be extra merciful to say to someone who's done things to children or women or people who can't help themselves, I forgive you and you're part of the family again. And this is why the church has always talked in terms of repentance is a long process and restitution is a long process. So the Lord actually expects people are going to try to make things up. Um, and that's, that's what we oftentimes forget. We think the Lord says to the death row inmate, you've killed 20 people, I forgive you and love you, and you're in heaven, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, he does do that, but he also expects that they're going to try to make some wrongs right, which is why, and this gets back to the mortal and venial, this is why the Catholic Church doesn't believe in the death penalty. If you kill somebody on death row, they have no chance for restitution. Okay? Yeah. Yes, Donna. Yes. That's very insightful. Um, I hadn't thought about that. but Because remember what Jesus says on the cross of his persecutors is, Father, forgive them. And remember he says, I could call down legions of angels basically to wipe them out, but I won't do it. And so you're right. Maybe part of it is broader than the local community, which is he knows these people will be killed. And what he says is, don't destroy your enemies. Don't destroy your enemies, which is very hard. It's going to be very rough. Exactly right. That's exactly right. That's Thank you. That's actually very helpful. I hadn't thought about that. Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. And wrongdoing, of course, has an object, which is Christ, and has an objective standard, which are the ten words. But there is sin that does not lead to death. And part of our, part of our uh, struggle is, what do we often do? We do one of two things. Either we judge hard, which we're very quick to do, He's doing this for this reason. She's doing this for this reason. Or we equate this kind of sin with having a bad day, which can't be done either, right? Somebody has a bad day, and we say, they're going to hell. True. I said somebody write to me this week. I'm writing you because I'm worried you might be going to hell. I said, okay. Partly, um, their nervousness is they've equated mortal sin, to steal somebody else's term, with everyday venial sin, right? And there is a distinction in the scriptures. So having a bad day is not the same thing as full knowledge, full consent, and grave matter. The rest of it? Ah, <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. 
Uh, I think you have to, like Jan just quoted, I think you have to read the rest of that verse, which is the gift of God is eternal life. All these people have the gift of God. So in some sense, this is why there's Easter. Exactly. And unrepentant sin is a rejection of eternal life because it's a rejection of absolution. So um, well, the wages of sin is death. Yes. Christ comes. Death is dead. That's why there's Easter. Death is dead and life lives. And then after that, yeah, you can walk back into death. This is, this is why, you know, for the new members, we always draw this thing right here. This is the person of Christ, Romans 6. You've been baptized into him. If you just stay in here, even if you get out near the edge, you're still in Christ, eternal life. The minute you walk out here, you're a dead man because then it's all you. And then you're back to the wages of sin is death. You've rejected the second clause. And that is what 1 John is talking about here in unrepentant sin. If you don't repent, you've rejected Christ and you stand outside of his flesh. Then you're a dead man. Holly. Yeah. It's a joint effort. And well, and the other, th- and the, yeah, and partly in the early church, all they had was the brotherhood. They did, these people did not say, I've got friends back home who aren't going to church. Those friends were going to kill them. So it's a whole, in some sense, it's a very different context. Their family became the church, um, unlike we have today. You and I can go along living just fine, have a church family on Sundays and a neighborhood family during the week. That wasn't the case in 90 A.D. or 100 A.D. So partly this did become their family. Um, and the other thing is, as you know, the way to get people who are outside the family into the family is not to say, you're a damn sinner. <laughs> the way you get them in is you show them how joyful your life is inside, and your life is only joyful if you repent and are forgiven. Yes, that could be. Let's read them, okay? Can we read them? Verse 17 and 18. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God, reference to baptism, does not keep on sinning. And the keep on there, the Greek word, is the word for uh, persistence. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. In fact, you're going to be anything but perfect. But uh, not being perfect doesn't mean you persist in sin. But he who is born of God protects him. Oh, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And this is why uh, in the early church, you know, at baptism, here you are. What did you get on your forehead? You got oil on your forehead to mark it. And, uh, and uh, the early church fathers said the devil actually can't look at the cross. So when the devil looks at someone who's been marked with holy oil and baptized, he actually has to shield his face. He can't look at you full blast. And sometimes, you, now, they're generally shy people, but sometimes you do notice, in a, especially in a church among the brotherhood, when someone has fallen into this kind of sin, what happens? They can't, they actually can't look you in the eye, right? They can't look you in the eye. It doesn't, now, don't take this as all shy people are evil. That's not what I'm saying. But people who are naturally not shy, who all of a sudden can't look at you, there's a reason for that because you've stepped outside of Christ, Christ protects those who are inside, how are they protected? With the Holy Cross. And he who is caught up in evil can't actually, can't actually you know, gaze at the cross. We know that we are from God. Oh, we're almost at time. 
We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the world is evil. Not evil. The world is in the power of the evil one. And we are in the power of God. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come, incarnation. Remember, what's the defining characteristic of Christ? He became man. And he has given us understanding so that we may know who, him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's fascinating. Keep yourselves from idols, because who are the idols then? Those who are outside the church, right? Those who are outside the church. And it's interesting here he says, we know, God is, we know Christ is true, and we are in Christ who is true. Okay? You don't only know the truth intellectually, you reside physically, ontologically. Part of your existence is in the person of Christ. Okay, any final questions? It is Holy Week, so uh, next week. So obviously we won't meet next Friday. Please, uh, just a little reminder schedule-wise. Um, remember, we have private confession Tuesday through Friday, 3.30 to 5, right upstairs. Um, Friday, the Eucharist at 12.15, I think, um, a service of readings that night. The big deal is the Easter Vigil. Um, this year, we'll receive new members at the Easter Vigil and also receive our confirmation students at the Easter Vigil. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a 90-minute, two-hour service, um, but it's glorious. It's the best service of the year. So if you can come, please come to that because we'll, we'll be receiving new folks and all of our confirmation kids will come through, and that's always a good day. Monday, Thursday, Eucharist, obviously, um, at 12.15 and at 7. Um, and then, like I said, Eucharist at the chief service on Friday, which is 12.15, readings at night, the vigil, the Eucharist, um, and then three on Sunday, 7.45, Okay? So it's a busy week. Pray for your pastors and your church because there's a lot going on. <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, have a great Holy Week.